Good evening. Our first reading tonight is from the third chapter of the prophet Jonah. He just came out of the fish's belly. End of chapter 2 tells us that the Lord spoke to the fish and he vomited Jonah onto dry ground. Must have been quite a vomiting action. The city he was heading was 500 miles away. And our scripture tells us in chapter 3 that now the word of God came to Jonah the second time. Remember, he refused the first. Now he's a different man. Saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let men and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let every one turn aside from his evil way and turn the violence and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is from the prophet Jeremiah. He says, I myself have said, how gladly would I treat you like my children and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me, but like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. A cry is heard on the barren heights, the weeping and pleading of the people of Israel, because they have perverted their ways and have forgotten the Lord their God. We turn, faithless people. I will curse you, I will cure you of backsliding. 
Yes, we will come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Surely the idolatrous commotion on the hills and mountains is a deception. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. From our youth, shameful gods have consumed the fruits of our ancestors' labor. Their flocks and herds, their sons, their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame, and let our disgrace cover us. We have sinned against the Lord our God, both we and our ancestors. From our youth till this day, we have not obeyed the word or the Lord our God. If you, Israel, will return, then return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, and if in a truthful, just, and righteous way you swear, as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will invoke blessings by him, and in him they will boast. This is what the Lord says to the people of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your plowed ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts. You people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. This is the word of the Lord. The third reading is taken from the book of Psalms, and it's Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. The gospel reading this week is from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. Mark 1, verses 14 to 20. After John was put in prison... Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. 
As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When they had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. It's the third Sunday of Epiphany. Epiphany is that season in between Christmas and Lent. And uh, our readings today, you might have noticed there are two from the prophets, and, I, uh, and there's nothing from the, the New Testament. How did we end up with something like that, I hear you ask? Because um, I was a little bit naughty, and uh, I blended some lectionaries together. Now, for those who have been attending uh, Christchurch or following us online, then you know that we follow a lectionary. This is a, a, a cycle, a rhythm of prayer and the reading of Scripture so that uh, uh, over a three-year period, if you are part of a worshipping and, uh, and, and, a, and a constant uh, attender of services, then you have gone through a large majority of the Bible. And some of the, there's strengths and weaknesses of lectionaries. One of the strengths is it stops us preachers from preaching our top ten favorite sermons, and you guys are always hearing the exact same thing. We get to have the whole counsel. It also means that sometimes preachers have to preach sermons they don't really want to. Okay? Like I remember getting up once and I was like, oh, I got to preach on the beheading of John the Baptist. Ugh. Okay? Can't I have a really good parable or something like that? The, the uh, usual lectionary that we follow is called the Revised Common Lectionary. And there's another lectionary that the uh, Anglican Church of North America uses, uh, also called a common lectionary, and they're different. So I think they have to reevaluate their word common, don't you? But, uh, but they both, all the readings, as you might have noticed, have a very common theme. And what is it? repentance. And so the concept that we're going to contemplate tonight as a community is repentance. And at this point, people go, oh, really? Great. I'm really looking forward to this sermon. This one's up there with tithing, okay? People don't really like that sermon either. Give me a good, you know, resurrection sermon or a demon slaying. But no, we will contemplate what uh, this theme of repentance, this theme as you can see from um, all of the readings, is a, is, a, is a concept that's been very old, but it, it applies to our community today because the world that we live in could do with a little bit of repenting. Repentance was even there before the world was made. How can I say such a thing, I hear you ask? Well, in uh, Psalm 90, which is a psalm of Moses, it's the only psalm attributed to Moses, uh, 
the psalm begins, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before the mountains were born, before the earth was called into being. So what are we talking about here? Talking about pre-creation. What was there before God made the heavens and the earth? We have no idea. The book of Genesis doesn't answer those kinds of questions. It just sets up God as the first cause. In the beginning, God. And here, Moses says something very interesting. Before the mountains in the world, you turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years are in your sight, and a, and a day is like, has just gone by like a watch in the night. You say to man, return. We haven't actually got any men. We haven't got humans yet, and yet you're telling them to return. Return to what? Well, the word in Hebrew, shuv, means return, yes. But it's also the root word for teshuvah, repentance. So before there was even a man, God in his wisdom says, repent. Come back. I need you to come back to me. So there's this Hebraic concept that before the world was made, repentance was already there. It's incredibly powerful. Another story that uh, uh, I was struck, when the destruction of the temple occurred, the Romans are burning the, the temple down and people are being led off into captivity, then uh, it was a shock. It was a theological shock for a lot of Jewish people. This was the house of God. This is the land he had given us. What can we do? How do we, how do we approach God? And, and uh, Yochanan ben Zakkai was being led away and as well with all the captives. And he said, we can still repent. We can still come back to God. Because that's what repentance means. At its root, return. Now, in our... In many Christian commentaries and in many uh, Christian ways of thinking, we often think of repentance as a turnaround, a change of mind. Uh, we were going in one direction and now we've stopped and we're going back in the other direction. And that's okay. It's not bad. But it misses the, the Hebrew perspective at the root, shuv, return. So if I left my house and then I returned to my house, where am I? I'm in my house. So our initial state was we were in the hand of God. We were close to his chest and his heart. We were surrounded by his love and his protection and his blessings. And for some reason, we left that. The enemy tempted us. Our own desires we chased. But for some reason, we left God's protection. 
And like what we read in the prophets, Israel had given their wealth to foreign gods and the best of their herds and unfortunately their sons and daughters. And our culture today, we've given enough of our children to the false gods of this age, yes? Return, come back. Come back straight away. When you return, you're back in the arms of God. It's very powerful. Repentance is not just a turn and walking back to God. It's being back with God instantly. That's what happens when you, when you repent. And who needs to do this repenting? Well, the, the, the psalm here says, Shuvu b'nei adam. Repent, it's in plural. Repent, you sons of Adam. Well, who are the sons of Adam? I hear you ask. You are. We all are. Not just the Jewish people. They're the sons of Adam too. But so are the Gentiles. This is for Jews and Gentiles. In fact, when you go through the, the Psalms, which are the prayer book of the Jewish people, and you actually know people's theology by how they pray. Okay? You, if, you, if you want to know where you are and how you stand before God, listen to your prayers. That's why uh, people took a lot of time crafting liturgical prayers. Because if every prayer that I pray is, Dear Lord, please give me a Tesla, where's my heart? It's in the wrong place. Okay? So you, the, the prayers are really important. Go through the prayer book of the Jewish people and you discover that salvation is universal. It applies to the whole world, Jews and Gentiles. Which, oddly enough, that was exactly the way it was meant to be right from the beginning. Because we were in the Parashat Shavua, in the, in the Torah portion for the Jewish people, they also have a lectionary. That's actually where we get the whole idea in, uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Christian world. It was for the Jewish believers. They brought that tradition into, into the church. That the Parashat Shavua is called Bo. It's, uh, it's Exodus. It's Exodus 10 to 13. It's the last three plagues and the Exodus out of Egypt. And as you know, Jewish people read the Bible with a fine-tooth comb, the, uh, they read Exodus. And in Exodus 10, verse 1, it says, God says to Moses, Come to Pharaoh. Well, that's what it says in English. In Hebrew, it says, Bo le paro. Also, in English, it says, Go to Pharaoh. In Hebrew, it says, Bo, which is come. Come to Pharaoh. So if God is saying to Moses, come to Pharaoh, where's God? He's with Pharaoh. He's with his people in Egypt. They don't know who he is. They're struggling and crying out for assistance, and God is right there in the mess with them, saying, come on, Moses, come. We'll take this guy down together. I'm ready. And for the Jewish people, the plague of the last one, the, the, the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, is the only plague where you have to participate. The rest of the plagues just happen. It's darkness for the Egyptians, but not for the Israelites. There's a plague of lice. It just it, 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 uh, tackles their crops. They have a problem drinking water that, that keeps turning into blood, not us. But the 10th plague, you have to participate. 
if you do not take that lamb, if you do not put the blood on the doorpost, you suffer too. Now, if you knew that if you better put some blood on the doorpost, otherwise you're in trouble, what are you going to do? You're going to put blood on the doorpost. What else might you do? You might check on your neighbors and say, hey, Reuben, did you, you haven't got blood on your doorpost. You better come over to my place, man. Bring your lamb. Um, but some, something else you might do, you might actually go up to your Egyptian taskmasters and you might invite them into your home. Conversation goes something like this. Mr. Egyptian, you don't like me very much. I'm not all that fond of you either, by the way. But you need to come into my house tonight. And in the morning, anybody who was in that house is saved. And as Israel leaves Egypt, who else comes to th with them? The, the Egyptians. The mixed multitude. Gentiles. Who's standing at Mount Sinai? Jews and Gentiles. Redemption. Salvation. Repentance. It's for everyone. It's incredibly powerful. Back in the arms and heart of God. And if we're not even sure that Gentiles can repent, that's why our lectionary gave us Jonah. Now, Jonah is the scroll that uh, the Jewish people read on Yom Kippur in the, the lectionary cycle that they have. Yom Kippur, the most holiest day of the Jewish calendar. It's the day where um, people go to the synagogue and pray. There are five types of prayers, and they have a prayer of confession. It really beats ours. It's about 22 minutes long. Uh, it names every single in sin under the sun. Okay? And, uh, and then you, you pray, and you fast, and you, and you repent. And the scroll, the book that you read, is Jonah, which is really ironic because who's repenting in the, in the prophet Jonah? Gentiles. Okay, you've got a Jewish holiday with Jewish people repenting, reading a book about Gentiles repenting. But they do. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, because, yeah, he got spat out by a fish, and he goes and preaches. And oddly enough, they listen to him. You have to wonder, how did he do it? Like, uh, it's a big city. How did this little guy gather their attention? And I, I personally think it's got something to do with the fish. Because uh, in chapter 2, when he gets swallowed by a fish, he prays. And, and it's very interesting what he prays. He says, answer me from the belly of Sheol. He doesn't say, answer me from the belly of a fish. Aneni mebeten sheol. Answer me from the belly of sheol, which means in Hebrew, I'm dead. Jonah's a, a, a sign of resurrection. I think that's why Jesus said, the sign of the prophet Jonah was resurrection. Now, three days in the belly of a fish. Guess what happens to you while you're in a fish? Inside anybody's stomach, by the way, you get eaten. And the, the, you know, it rips all the hair off your skin and it starts to eat your flesh. And suddenly you look really, really weird. And so what gets vomited out is a very weird looking man who walked into Nineveh and everybody paid attention. And when they repented, 
What did they do? Sackcloth and ashes, a change of heart, a deliberate stopping of their deeds. And it says in, in verse 10, God saw their deeds. Like, and they didn't sacrifice anything. Right? Just like the psalm says, I will forgive your sins, says the Lord. It doesn't say because I'm going to kill something. He will. But God will forgive. Repentance is very powerful. And the Gentiles repent. But what about the heart? And I think that's the reason why I included the Jeremiah portion. Because Jeremiah was talking about Israelites this time. So we had the Gentiles in Jonah. And uh, in Jeremiah, Israel had unfortunately chased after false gods. They had unfortunately given their, their best to things that were worthless, much like our modern society. Did God leave them alone? No, he said, come back, return to me. And as part of it, he said, circumcise yourselves. And I could almost imagine the Jewish people responding, but Jeremiah, we already are circumcised. There's not much more to cut off here. And he goes, no, circumcise your hearts. Because it's actually always been about the heart. Sometimes some traditions have looked at uh, Judaism and the Jewish people and said, that's a works-based religion. All they ever want to try and do is work their way into heaven. Actually, if you actually got a rabbi here and says, you're working your way into heaven, you know what he would say? No. Circumcise your hearts, because Moses says at the beginning of in, in, in Deuteronomy, write these laws where? On your heart. And teach them to your children. It's always meant to be on your heart. Yes, that also means it'll be in a book. Yes, it also means it'll be on your lips. It'll, yes, it'll also be in your classrooms where you study. But where do you really need to put the law of God, the teachings of God, His guidance and His instructions? Right here. The, the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the people of Judah, and I will put my Torah, my law, on their hearts. Why? Because that's exactly where it was supposed to be. That's where it's, that's where it's going to be. And David says in, in the Psalms, Create in me a clean heart, O God. As part of my repentance, as when, I'm, when I'm really close to you, make sure this is, is clean so that I can hear your heart as well. Who can stand before the Lord, David says, he who has clean hands, so his deeds are good, and a pure heart. And if you haven't got a pure heart, then I'll take out your hearts of stone and I'll put in a heart of flesh, says the prophets. Always been about the heart. And so with all of that background of how powerful repentance is and where you do your repentance in deeds and in your heart, you then come to the New Testament. And John the Baptist and Jesus say the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. In fact, John says to the Pharisees, you guys need to repent and show fruit from your repentance. So repentance returning to God, the heart changes your actions. Mark, well, his gospel is, is very fast-paced. 
We don't get any childhood stories of, of Jesus. We do. He just appears out of the desert, uh, straight away gets baptized by John, and then immediately he's in the wilderness for 40 days, uh, of which we get no information. Thank you, Mark. We have to go to other Gospels to figure out what happened there. And when Jesus comes out of the desert, he says, the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. Now, most of you who have been part of this community and those who have been joining us online understand that we talk about the kingdom of heaven a lot. Now, the, the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, Melchut HaShemaim, does not appear in the Hebrew Bible. It is not in the Old Testament. It is something that develops in the Second Temple period. This idea of, even though we're in diaspora, even though there are different monarchs and totalitarian regimes and Roman emperors and Greek emperors, God can still be ruling and reigning over my heart. It doesn't matter if there's a Roman soldier there. I can still have the law on my heart. I can still be operating according to the teachings and the instructions of God. God can still be my king. That was the kingdom of heaven. Wherever God's will was being done, wherever he was ruling and reigning. And Jesus says, kingdom of heaven is close. God's rule and reign is right here. So repent. Get back to being with God. And believe. Believe what? They already believe in God. What, is, what does Jesus say? Believe in the gospel. What an interesting thing to say. What does he mean by that? Now, the idea for repentance is definitely applicable to today. It's not something Jesus just said 2,000 years ago because uh, the, the, the New Testament comes to us in Greek. And uh, it's a fascinating language. I tried to study it. Never going to do that again. <laughs> I'm going to just use a computer. <laughs> the Greek word for repent is in the active tense, meaning... It's something that you keep on doing. It's always going to be active. Every time you say the word, it's right now. So repentance is a lifestyle. Repentance is something that we're doing all the time. Because we're, with, we're safe in the arms of Jesus. We're safe with God. But you and I don't always want to stay there, do we? We don't always want to love God with our whole heart. We don't always want to love our neighbor as ourselves. We sometimes leave. And so the the, when, the, when the community gets together, one of the first things we do is we repent. We make sure we're back, returned in God's presence, safe, close, hearing his heartbeat, listening to him, protected by his angels. And we're ready to be fed and nurtured and to share. So it's, it's something that happens all the time, but it's connected to the kingdom where God is ruling and reigning. It's connected to the good news. And I actually think the prophets sum it up really well. So Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. Now, this is going to be a familiar one for everyone. It says, How beautiful on the mountains are feet of those who bring good news. Now, good news, the... Uh, is, is what is what is good news? What is the gospel? In 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 Greek, 
the word is used in the New Testament more than it's used outside the New Testament. So it's not always easy to, to look at how the other Greek authors are using that word. What do they mean by good news? Well, often it's used in, in, in a military term. That is, there's been some horrible disaster, there's a big battle, we're a bit tense. The enemy might be coming. Are we saved? Are we not saved? Do we have victory? Do we not have victory? And, and a runner comes, an ambassador. Some, somebody shows up and they give us good news. We won. Victory is ours. You're like, oh, praise the Lord. The war is over. It's very similar here. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace. Shalom has come. Not war, not disease, not plague, not violence. Shalom, peace. Good tidings. The proclamation of salvation. The good news brings with it salvation. The gospel is peace, it is good tidings, and it is also salvation. And say to Zion, your God reigns. There's the kingdom. The good news brings the fact that God is ruling and reigning in your life. And so we don't want to leave that comfort zone. We don't want to leave the safety of the Lord. So repent and return wherever you are, whatever we're doing. We do it as individuals. We do it as families. We do it as a community. You can even do it as a nation. The good news and the call to repentance comes with also the call to discipleship. And that's how the gospel kept going. And uh, we had a, a, a sermon on discipleship last week. We're all called to be disciples. And in Mark's gospel, which is incredibly fast, Jesus just walks up to some disciples and says, follow me, and then they do. And I would love to have that kind of power. Wouldn't you? I would love to be able to go, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. And people go, oh, well, that's fantastic. I believe that now. I would fill this church, baby. Okay? But it doesn't kind of work that way. The, 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 the Gospel of John shows us that these guys actually know each other from, from previous encounters. The disciples have already been the disciples of John. They've already got a hunger for the kingdom of heaven and a desire to know more. And they've already met Jesus. And they've already heard John the Baptist say, that's the Lamb of God. So they're, in, they're ready to, 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 to become disciples of Jesus. So he invites them and calls them to himself. And they join in. And what do they do as a disciple? Just follow him around. Eat the free, free bread and pita and hummus that comes out. No. They share in Everything they share in the divine life. They study. They emulate. They put what they learn into practice. They imitate. So that at the end of all the study and all the discipleship, how many Jesuses have we got? Thirteen, what we're supposed to have. We're supposed to look like him, act like him, talk like him. In fact, he even says, you're even going to do greater things than me. We're going to share in his spirit. But it starts with us returning to the place where we're meant to be. 
safe in the arms of God. It starts with accepting the call to discipleship. It starts with accepting that there is really good news. Peace, joy, salvation, and it's light. And what's out there? It needs us to tell them about it. It needs us to share the call. It needs us to bring the good news. It needs us to expand the kingdom of heaven. It needs us to invite people to repent. So brothers and sisters, let's have the courage to start with ourselves and to share the good news. Amen.